From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is my longtime friend Dan Danelli, superintendent on the North Shore of Chicago, home of some of Chicago's finest and the world's greatest golf courses. For regular listeners to this fine program, you will recognize Dan as a frequent contributor on topics concerning organic matter, sand top dressing, and the soil microbiome. We sat down recently to discuss the long-anticipated rebuilding of the putting greens at North Shore Country Club one year in. What have we learned? What was surprising? And what are you looking forward to seeing? This included a broad discussion on the life underground. Here's Dan Dinelli beginning with how they approached green construction at North Shore Country Club. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, my old pal Dan Dinelli from Chicago, the North Shore of Chicago. Dan Thanks for taking the time to join me, and I don't want to waste a minute before we talk about sort of uh, the sequel now, many years later, from the construction of your new greens. Uh, Let's take uh, the listeners who might not have heard those previous uh, episodes exactly what you did in the construction uh, of these new bentgrass surfaces that you've got at North Shore Country Club. Well, Frank, thanks for having me again, and it's always a pleasure. Yeah, I learned a lot with these new greens, both prior and designing and studying how to perhaps enhance their longevity and their sustainability and their development, construction, and now their growing and maintenance. There's a lot of things that are almost like the exact opposite of what my instincts are used to growing poa on old soil-based push-up greens. <laughs> hmm. You know, in the past, I've always been concerned about what was going on below ground, not so worried about what was going on above ground, so to speak. But with these new greens being young bentgrass plants, where, for example, you know, is an issue that first season or two before that mat layer develops and that plant becomes, you know, more complex, I guess, with different carbon materials, lignin and so on. But, you know, wear has never been an issue at POA. Shade is another one. If you have a little bit of shade on these new greens, it shows in the bent grass laziness, both in wear tolerance and ball mark healing, for example. Uh, it doesn't take many hours of difference in shade. You know, those things hit home hard when you're trying to grow these greens in at a high level. So let's go back to the root zone mix. Was it 33 different amendments with a uh, USGA spec sand? Yeah, the base was a 90-10 Dakota reset, meeting USGA requirements, and I did a lot of work, Vetus and I and Mike, all who work with me at North Shore, that uh, we did not exceed any of the parameters that are within USGA. You know, I did not want to mess up the pore space, for example, by overloading with compost in that, but yeah, there's various different composts in there, different uh, biosolids, there's different meals, probiotics, or different microbes, specific microbes, and biochar all added to that 90-10 in such a way that we hope that over time those materials not only create a more robust microbiome that would reflect hopefully in plant health and function, but also equalize what we know is going to evolve near the surface as the turf system changes the upper layer of that root zone. And the upper layer of that root zone is typically amended with the regular application of straight sand. So the sort of traditional way we do this is you apply straight sand. In fact, most people will tell you one of the biggest revolutions we've had in the last couple of decades, Dan, would be the regular sand top dressing. And what we're seeing now is it's not just, oh, well, you put sand. 
you're creating not just a bilayer mix, but I'll go just a little bit sideways into the physical end. There's a lot of uniform sands being used, right, by design that affects how well it sets up sometimes. So firmness, I think, can be an issue if you're just using extremely uniform sand and you build up organic matter at the surface. But that's the physical end. What you're noticing and what we've noticed is when you start tan top dressing, it sounds, I think, if we pick up what I know you and I left off a long time ago, that we're essentially beginning to bury the organic matter. Is is that a fair statement? Yeah. So what I feel like I've learned and what my goals have been, first of all, I will not disagree that sand top dressing has helped our industry tremendously, but that is generally, in my opinion, in a push-up soil-based grid zone. When you think about sand top dressing, in that situation, you're basically adding a coarser layer on top of a finer layer with higher amounts of organic matter. So the organic matter that's in that upper surface, including the finer sands even, are more forgiving. It's still a more porous, more favorable root zone. So you're reconstructing from the top down a more favorable root zone on top of that soil-based system. I do think, and I still believe, that that is very beneficial under most situations. However, you fast forward to just a couple decades now of these sand-based systems, whether you want to call it the USGA or California, that rely on high percent sand-based systems. Now, like you said, you are generally adding a different amount of sand on the surface in the sense of particle size. Even if you want to include the coarser sand fraction, it's hard because it gets picked up by the more. So you've got two things going on that I think interferes with the long-term functionality of a sand-based red zone. One is perhaps a finer sand. I'm not sure if that's an exact accurate way to put it, but a sand that's omitting the coarser fraction. And the organic matter that you are diluting is surface organic matter. So now what you're doing with sand top dressing is you're converting surface organic matter into soil organic matter. So typically, when you top dress, you're not incorporating sand within the red zone system. So therefore, you can't dilute soil organic matter unless you do so. So typical top dressing is really diluting and burying and preserving surface organic matter that usually tests out on an average around 2% in most situations. And at least certainly for us, that's what it's been. So if you have a 2% organic matter horizon that you're building over time through sand top dressing on top of a red zone mix that started with 1%, right away you're going in a different direction. And you're building finer, higher organic material on top of coarser, less organic material. That's a big difference than most push-up greens. So... You talked about developing that mat layer, and certainly the amount of organic matter we have in that mat layer is critical, and that's typically the number that we focused on. When you're talking about surface organic matter, are you talking about above the soil line and the verdure, or is there uh, a network, especially with these bent grass greens of stoloniferous material that begins to form? I I need just some clarity because I I know conceptually what I think you mean between soil organic matter and surface organic matter, but I just want to visualize it. Are we talking above the soil line and the verdure uh, or verdure? depends on who you're talking to. Regarding that, or are we talking about that sort of mat layer that establishes in the top couple of millimeters? 
Well, that's a good question. So if you visualize where the sand is deposited during top crusting, it's deposited on the surface, which we typically call the thatch area, the surface organic matter within the verdure. So it, it is organic matter that's above the soil line. And when that sand commingles with those left-off sheaths, the crown, the stems, the plant adjusts and grows through that sand burial. And in doing so, the more robust plant parts that are found at and near the surface, the crowns and the stems primarily, those are the parts that will elongate and stretch through that sand as you continue to bury them with top dressing. Mm -hmm. So... So it's not just the dead material that you're burying and preserving, because I'm, I'm under the belief that cycling this stuff out, the dead material is very difficult in a sand-based system. It's not a system designed, really, to cycle out organic matter at a high pace compared to a mineral-based system that has soil shredders associated with them and, and the whole biology and the network of organisms that are designed to cycle organic matter. We just don't welcome those in a sand-based system. Earthworms are a big part of it, for example, my fairway management, where I feel like the earthworms, when I top dress my fairways with compost every year, is a key player in cycling that surface organic matter. So that being said, you've got surface organic matter being buried and preserved, but you're also altering the structure of the plant. The plant's more robust plant parts, I guess, become more so, I guess, is the best way I can put it. So there's a couple of things that come to my mind. First off, now I'm clear on what you're talking about. There is this material that accumulates at the surface. Part of the reason greens probably play better after you sand them is it probably dries that out and, as you said, becomes a matrix. But the byproduct of that, you're saying, is now you're building a new root zone on top of what you just spent to put the 12 inches of the existing material in. So the question becomes, just practicality-wise, we'll we'll see how deep uh, dives we'll do on this because we have a couple of segments to go yet, Dan. Let's just talk about the practicality of this now trying to deal with that material that's accumulating because you've been around long enough and I know you've tried to build greens there at North Shore many, many years ago as well. And back then the plan was, man, you better start top dressing within the first two weeks of growing them in. And if you really want them in, you better put some nitrogen to them. And certainly there are a lot of programs that continue to suggest that. And and to follow that logic, all they're doing is building a new root zone on the top of the one that they paid for. So back to the question, what are you doing uh, with that stuff on the top now? So that's a good question. So in this discussion, the suggestion is not to do nothing that surface organic matter still needs to be managed. And what I tried to do, I tried really hard to understand, for example, the contribution plant genetics has, just for the sake of discussion, you compare to, you know, creeping bank grass is not just creeping bank grass. They're cousins, or whatever you want to call them. They're cultivars, varieties, differ greatly. Ten cross on one end, for example, versus declaration or pure distinction on the other end, make biomass a lot differently. And you got a lot of different cultivars in between that fall within that spectrum of biomass production. You know, you got to also understand a little bit about bloat and raised crowns. Some of these cultivars want to scalp a little bit more in the summertime, so you want to understand that the best you can. And there's inputs, you know, like Proxy Primo. I used to use that on my old Poa Greens, but I only used them for a couple of years because I didn't like how it raised the crowns later in the season and created scalping that if you weren't top dressing aggressively, you know, the outcome would not be favorable. 
So it becomes a complicated network, a matrix of things, of plant genetics, inputs, fertility. But at the end of the day, my hope is that the scientific community finds interest in this question of how are we altering the highly engineered based on physical components of these sand-based systems that we rely on on their functionality. You know, the single-grain structure, for example, that they're actually relying on. We're, we're relying on that pore space in between each sand particle mm-hmm. and the macro and micro pores that exist. So when you read, for example, literature about building healthy soils, it's very common to hear about how you want to add organic matter, whether it's compost or or humates, whatever, you got to start really questioning those things when you're talking about single-grain soil structure because if those things start getting in those pores and plugging them up, we don't have the patience for those sand particles to glue together from things like cyanobacteria and other organisms because our greens will fail before they come to another functional level. You know, nature wants to dirty that stuff up pretty quick. So things like brushing and verticutting that verdure chronically, not just once or twice a year like you and I grew up, you know, the old timers, verticutting is nothing new. But in the past, historically, they would do it aggressively once or twice a year, perhaps. We have to find, like we did with sand top dressing, what is acceptable and effective that is light and frequent to harvest that service organic matter instead of bury and preserve through top dressing. Dan, this is a perfect place to stop. We're just getting started here on Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message from Dryject and our friends at Intelligrow. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Let's return to my conversation with Dan Dinelli as we discuss grass selection and the role of the plant in determining soil life. Okay, well, you know, it wasn't too many years ago where you can count on one hand the amount of cultivars that one would be happy to select from for putting green performance and the demands that is put on them today. But the plant breeders, you know, have done such a wonderful job. It gets to be a complicated <laughs> decision, and you can count on two hands easily of different cultivars that uh, I think you would be hard-pressed to tell one from another, but I settled down on a three-way blend, 
a 007 Flagstick and McKenzie. And I've, you know, I got several years under my belt watching those cultivars perform under low input environments, under putting green management, you know, at North Shore Country Club. I've been fortunate to have three NTEP trials that Dr. Tom Voigt from U of I oversaw that gave me exposure to most of these uh, cultivars, mentgrass cultivars. And it's not an easy decision. It wasn't easy for me. You know, it's just the idea of blending versus not blending. You can see both sides of the argument. One is go with a single strain, and I want to ignore the idea that bentgrass is actually cross-pollinated and there's already diversity in each cultivar. That, that's a fact. So, I mean, there's some variance there within each bag of the individual cultivar, but, I mean, more robust background in their genetics and you can either plant a single strain, understand their weaknesses, and manage around that. That's one model that is plausible. I went the other direction and went with diversity because until we know better about all the variables, the pressures that are put on these bent grasses, what I mean by that is shade tolerance, heat, cold, wear, nutrients, you know, regimes. Traffic. Right, trap. There's so many different variables that we put on these greens, and no two greens are alike with walk-on, walk-off traffic and whatnot. My philosophy was, you know, or I should say a philosophy that I subscribe to is to go with diversity, but in a way where there is a phenotype strength. There's biotypes and phenotypes, right? So the phenotypes need to match to some degree. So you don't want to throw in cultivars that are grossly different in their texture and their yeah. color, for example, but their genetic diversity is still to be broad, so in hopes that the survival of the fittest persists under those varying conditions. And so the three that you chose, 007, Flagstick, and McKenzie, theoretically have similar color and shoot density. Yeah, similar enough that I was comfortable with it, yep. And so now you've planted them, you've had them in uh, a year now, They're they're a year old? Correct, a little over a year. A little yeah. over a year old. I, I'm on the early morning videos from Dan Danelli Club, which I just love. And so I get to see them through your camera uh, once in a while. I haven't seen them. How is the uh, segregation and modeling going? Because I know from you in the past and that wonderful article that you keep on LinkedIn about this, some of the uh, really dense ones like Pure Distinction was sort of pure, right? And it kept Poe out really good. I guess I'm a little curious why you didn't go, you know, with something that you knew would keep the annual bluegrass out. Well, that's a great question and not an easy one to answer, but uh, the first thing you brought up was segregation, and I do anticipate after about five to seven years, segregation will become noticeable. When they're this young, you typically don't see that uh, segregation occur yet. And Frank, by the way, I don't want to get sideways totally here, but what a fascinating study that would be for some young person if you think about the seedling rate that uh, new greens seeded at, let's say, a pound per thousand, individual plants that exist on that putting surface, how does, in five to seven years, the different biotypes become colonized and express themselves as they do in these patches that become as big as, you know, several inches up to a foot in diameter? Isn't that fascinating in itself as how these different biotypes end up evolving to take over an area in a fairly quick period of time? I mean, that just blows me away. If you really think about how it starts. Yes. You know, th this is why 
Carl Dannyberger's book from many years ago uh, on turfgrass ecology had a chapter on interspecific competition and intraspecific competition. And there's no uh-huh. question in my mind, and I know you you know this, that there's a fair amount of stuff going on below the ground, exuding and creating habitat and aggregating, much like soil particles will aggregate around roots where, you know, uh, biomass, microbial biomass can accumulate around a root because of the chemicals there. And to me, what you're probably seeing is the expression of that. I'm more fascinated to get us back on track. You actually mixed three grasses together that you had never seen mixed together before, didn't you? Yes. Um, there is some data out there, though, from Rutgers and Kale at Purdue that messed around with some of these. There was a couple out there, like 007 and I think McKenzie. So there's some blends, some data on blends out there. And so the other thing about pure distinction you brought up, if I had to live with my old, poorly drained push-up greens, I probably would have gone with pure distinction and just kept top-dressing the heck out of them, Hmm. knowing that one of my biggest weak links was poa infestation, you know, in that poorly drained soil, heavy soils that uh, poania probably is going to find to be more competitive against most vents. But being that I'm going on a sand-based root zone, the biomass scared me of pure distinction. And this is splitting hairs, but pure distinction almost always looks like a new grass. It looks so pure, so to speak, that the best comment that I would like to hear from golfers after they played North Shore is these are nice greens. If I hear a few years from now the comments still that these are nice new greens, you know, it's not like that's offensive by any means, but it's an old traditional golf course, mm-hmm. and I want that patina to reflect that. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of modeling, as long as it's not interfering with ball roll, mm-hmm. I welcome. I okay. want to see that slight modeling because that has the patina of an old classic course that North Shore is built in 1924. So since you brought it up, the idea of golfers and and the playability that you expect. I'm with you 100% on the patina or that antique look that the modeling gives. I, I really like that because, of course, the South German bents, the very first things we ever deliberately planted, I think, that we said, okay, this is a golf course grass. You look at Piper and Oakley, and, and it was the South German bent uh, concoction mm-hmm. that we used. And you can go to Australia and, and the Sussex mix that they use at Royal Melbourne where they'll play the President's Cup this fall. You know, that's another bent grass mix uh, that we use. So it's, it's not like we don't have these out there. I'm very interested in the playability, though, because you, you know, you've had tour events, senior events. You're in the North Shore of Chicago. It's a discriminating clientele. They are new greens, and you did manage POA before. I want to start our playability discussion with what you mentioned very early on, and that's the wear tolerance. So let's start with the wear tolerance, and then let's get to the playability and ball roll and firmness and stuff like that. So you mentioned earlier that they're struggling a little bit with wear until the mat layer develops. Are you using PGRs? Are you sort of looking at your growth and moderating your fertility? Uh, what's going on with traffic stress management? Well, it's a good question. So part of that discussion is just simply time. And if you really dig into the depths of how bent grass grows throughout the season months, you know, the first year we, you know, we, we seeded those greens late summer, early fall. We got a wonderful take, a great grow in. The following spring, they were looking Extremely good. 
great density, roots to the pea gravel, extremely quick. So very healthy, high-level functioning greens. But the truth is, last spring was a lot like this spring. It was very wet and very cold for a long period of time. And if you understand how the plant grows in the different seasons, spring and fall is very important for shoot development and creating sister plants and tillering. During the summer months, the plant kind of goes into more or less a sustained mode and not doing a lot of aggressive tillering. So the first year during growing, obviously, there's not much of any tillering taking place. They're individual plants. And then the following year, I didn't get a good spring to get much tillering and sister plants to create that network that goes from grass to sod-like conditions. And then during the summer, it was more like coasting through the summer, and that's when I had to back off on the green rolling. It's not like the plants were failing. It's just that I had to back off on rolling, which impacted ball roll speed. Hmm. And I had to correct some issues with shade. I thought I got the trees pushed back far enough, but on a couple greens I didn't. They needed to be opened up even more so. And then came fall, the plant responded through its physiological changes and started to tiller and create that mat layer. And this year so far, they've been completely different than last year and, and holding up well. And to add to that tiller, it's like it was explained to me once in Michigan State, it's probably Dr. Payne. He says the first year when you grow a green and you're growing the carpet, the second and third year you grow the padding, which is our mat and that mat layer. And so any person that knows carpeting will tell you you want a quality matting underneath there because that's what creates the resiliency from wear on the carpet. So that's what we're doing now is we got that mat layer developing. It's already uh, established and continue to expand. And I can see that already this year in managing the greens. So that's an interesting observation. And before we go to our next break, Dan, let's talk a little bit about that mat development, because wouldn't you argue that we've accelerated under normal conditions, right? Things that that are not what you're doing when we see greens grown in in a traditional way. Don't you think that generally they try to accelerate that process a little bit? And I wonder if sand doesn't help uh, accelerate that process. And that makes me think a little bit more about you know, firmness and sand, and then I see you throwing balls into your fairway, and the compost side is firmer than the sand side, and I know that, you know, there are lots of questions about this, so are we accelerating firmness, or are we making them softer by continuing to top dress with sand on these USGA greens? I think there's a transition period because during growing, I did top dress them to kind of work out the waffle marks. You know, we did the traditional dimpling of the red zone mix before we put the seed down, and you end up with those waffle marks. They're very those little pockets are extremely effective in growing the seedlings. And so, to get the imperfections and the smoothness out, I did top dress that first year, and I've only top dressed once this year. I plan. I'm probably not top dressing again. So I think you're right that top dressing does help create that mat layer. But once you get a mat layer developed that's in excess, which we would have to think about what that is in excess, I would say certainly if you get that mat layer or that top dressing horizon to the depth where you can't reach through it anymore with conventional tines and things, that's when I think these sand-based systems start to become even more problematic and softer. 
Because if you think about how the surface organic matter plays a role, part of it is also the fact that we surface apply everything. Mm-hmm. So when we surface apply biostimulants, nutrients, water, when you have that higher percent organic matter at the surface, that the mat will develop on its own, and the sand top dressing will continue to cultivate that, it just starts this downward spiral where all the action is at the top. I mean, almost all the action is literally at the top. And so after, say, a 7- to 10-year period, depending on several variables, all your roots end up being in that top dressing horizon, the organic matter's high, the water's being perched, and now your green starts to turn soft and potentially problematic, perhaps black layer, perhaps iron precipitate, because now you've got interference with water movement, you've got interference with gas movement, and the root zone turns upside down. Unlike a push-up green, where the finers below and the high organic matter below will create some wicking action. In the USGA or in the sand-based system, that wicking action doesn't really take place from below because it's generally a cleaner, coarser sand. All right, Dan, this is another perfect time to stop because you've started to go underground. And before we have an underground conversation, we have to hear from our sponsors and friends at Dryject and Intelligrow. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf core superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Let's head underground with my guest, Dan Dinelli, and discuss amendments and the complexity of soil life in the new greens at North Shore Country Club. So, right. So when, when you talk about how the sand-based red zone evolves over time, like we mentioned, you're going to generally have finers near the surface if you top dress and high organic matter that will grow in depth if you top dress, but will still occur even if you don't top dress with that matte layer that the plant develops on its own. One of the challenges in my mind was, how do I balance that out better? How do I, I don't want to say mimic a push-up environment, but I think in many ways a push-up environment, red zone environment, performs better. If you can make, you know, if you can get those systems to drain positively, Hmm. I think a lot of superintendents would argue they would, they find that red zone a little more friendlier Hmm. than a sand-based red zone. I think part of that reason is because 
the cleaner, coarser sand down below versus the finer half-dressing sand and high-organic matter up above. So what is that impacting? It's impacting your water holding, your CEC, nutrient retention, and most of the time in generally natural soils, if you want to call them that, you know, that's your organic matter and your clay particles that are contributing to a lot of that, which we built these greens with very little of. So what could be added that won't interfere with the single-grain structure of the sand? Adding clays is dangerous. Adding more organic matter could have its issues, too. So biochar, to me, seemed to be a really good option because it's persistent, unlike the peats that we know we lose at least half of those peats over time, a fairly short period of time. And so that organic matter that we start with throughout that original 12-inch mix leans out, and the CEC and the water holding capacity kind of goes with it. Don't the plants begin to contribute significantly to that? That's sort of what we've been talking about. You were saying that the surface organic matter now will start to contribute about 2%. So it seems like, you know, that's going to do it on its own, but you wanted something else from the biochar. So that 20-year-old research green, that first NTEP green that we built, remember we built it with 20 different red zone amendments, put L93 Providence as a 50-50 blend, so we have the same bent grass growing over 20 different red zone cells with 20 different amendments, axis profiles, Zeacro as inorganic amendments, different composts, worm castings, sphagnum peat, Dakota reed sedge, and a straight sand mix, or straight sand, I should say, red zone cell, all being managed the same. And what we learned, Frank, is that those fine roots that you see massively growing in the first few years all the way down to pea gravel, they degrade. They don't leave behind very persistent organic matter. The organic matter that's persistent is the organic matter that's near the surface, which are those more robust plant parts. So we know, for example, the leaf blades don't contribute a lot of organic matter. It's mostly water, and when it breaks down, the microbes do find that as an energy source, much the same as the fine roots. So that original 12-inch mix, give or take an inch at the top, really leans out in organic matter. And the plant doesn't contribute enough in balance to what is contributing near the surface. So it's that surface organic matter that's the challenge. This is so fascinating because, as I understand, part of the design of your root zone mix was to not just mimic the push-up, as you've said, in some ways, and create a habitat for the microbiome that might be more heavily weighted towards degrading organic matter, for example. However, you're saying that the organic matter is actually building up on top to a certain extent of this really coolly designed, you know, really innovative designed root zone mix. So how do you capitalize on the microbial richness you've tried to create in the root zone with the stuff that's uh, occurring on the top, Dan? Well, that's the challenge. So the hope was that, you know, I try to visualize the root zone in two different ecosystems, I guess. One is the bulk soil and the cycling that takes place in that bulk soil, as an example. And the other is what the plant is doing within the rhizosphere. And part of those 33 different Amendments included pre-plant seed treatments with different probiotics and char and, and so forth. And so the overall vision was to have a very robust microbial community that can contribute from a very early stage 
by inoculating it with things like trichoderma, different mycorrhizae and bacillus and pseudomonas, these different microbes that are available, plus the big gray box shotgun of different compost extracts or teas that are delivering God knows what. And the hope is that we create a very robust microbiome that then the plant can associate itself with within the rhizosphere as it does its thing, and that the bulk soil has got organisms ready to cycle organic matter that's being deposited wherever it is, primarily near the surface. And the biochar will resist that degradation, so the CEC, the water holding capacity, and kind of the substitute for the organic matter down below is the biochar. So are you getting any indication? I mean, you know, it sounds like these things are still evolving, and a lot of what you're observing, and certainly we just spent two-thirds of the program talking about, was essentially what's going on above ground. But now that you're starting to get that mat creation, right, it seems like it's this constant push and pull between, well, I need organic matter to generate itself so I can get that mat layer, get that cushion going in the next couple of years. But at the same time, I don't want growth to go crazy because then I got to yep. figure out how to get it out of there because I don't want to yep. bury it. And then yep. I got the genetics of the plant that makes it produce its own biomass. And we haven't even talked about the sort of nitrogen metering. And even if you're using plant growth regulators, which would alter that root to shoot ratio to some degree. So I'm not sure where you want to go in the, you know, the last half of our final segment here, Dan, but, but you can imagine the sort of complexity of what you're trying to do. And I'm just wondering, do you think what you've designed for is starting to manifest itself in no other way than the persistence of the deep roots, right? Everybody shows those beautiful roots at the bottom of the cup in the first year, right? And you talked about it in the old greens that you built. And what I want to know is, is that persisting? If you're not building it from the top, is that forcing in some ways uh, a bigger mass to be developed deeper? Well, we need a few more years to answer your question, but so far I'm happy with where I'm at and what I'm seeing. It's kind of what we've seen in our greenhouse tests and our field tests with these different amendments at different rates. And Frank, I can't explain it all. I try my best to read up on it and understand it, but it's so complicated. And root architecture is fascinating in itself, and there's so many variables, as you well know. But one of them is the plant's desire to mine plant nutrition. And if the sand-based system leans out like I know it does as the surface richens up and all of our inputs are at the surface... Where do you think those roots are going to end up over time? There's really little to no reason for those roots to go down and try to mine nutrients because they're simply not there in proportion to what's at the surface. So the biochar's role is to try to balance that better. I mean, I would love to come up with a system that injects most of our inputs instead of surface applied and get it down deeper in the root zone. I mean, you know, we know nitrogen's mobile, for example, so that's probably a lesser player in this discussion. But what about phosphorus and all the miners? So what we do in the industry is we go to spoon-feeding light rates of so-called foliar-applied nutrients, and that works, but it doesn't drive roots like they would if they were seeking it out to supply the plants opposed to 
spoon feeding near the surface. Okay, so listen, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the sort of physical property management beyond top dressing. I'm assuming that growing demand, you know, you've got to keep them moist. There's a lot of lush material. Maybe it gets nutrient rich. You're top dressing it a little bit. It gets a little smeary at the top where you want it to dry out. And the first reflex, if you're not going to top dress, might be to poke a hole or or groom lightly uh, across the surface. Uh, What have you done relative to keeping that mat layer permeable so that water doesn't accumulate to surface and does move in? Another good question. And uh, we have Toro 1000 green mowers that are outfitted with the solid steel groomers on there, the verticutters on there, that I can adjust up and down to be pretty aggressive to try to um, comb out, if you will, the surface organic matter when we mow. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, is that mat develops you know, I don't want that mat layer to choke off the area below it. So we dry jet, but we don't dry jet with the straight sand. What we did is we took two semi-loads of our construction sand and threw a cement mixer and two of my guys, we hand-blended vermicompost in with that construction sand. So I'm dirtying up the sand and injecting a so-called cleaner sand, though, through that upper mat layer that eventually developed here. So that's going to be an ongoing practice of mine uh, for these new greens. Um, as far as coring goes, I don't plan to core. Maybe the little pencil cores, you know, that just do the surface, I call them, that Moreto has. Mm-hmm. But also there's these verticutters out there that once I feel the time is right, I'm going to uh, use those verticutters. We call them the polo busters and that, but Moreto makes one and True Surface makes one. I think another company just made one that's similar. They're very thin bladed with a little twist to them, vertical cutting blades that you can go in there and either tickle the surface or be really aggressive with it and actually physically remove that surface biomass. And my old polar greens loved it. The pure distinction absolutely needed it with that amount of biomass those plants produce. And the greens, the grasses I picked, like you said, I try to hit the middle road sweet spot. They're not quite ready for it yet. Probably this fall they will be for that treatment of verticutting, and eventually that practice will become more and more common in managing these greens. Listen, we got to wrap up, and I'm wondering uh, what you're telling the golfers at North Shore Country Club about the evolution of these things. Certainly, it was a long period of time for the discussion and and proposals, and you know now they're built and and starting to get played on. And you're you know you're seeing some of the issues, and you're I can tell your thoughts are going at a hundred miles an hour about you know what's going on underneath. What are you telling them about when you think, you know, you you said in five years, you don't want them saying, well, they're good for new greens. I'm assuming you're expecting they're going to be mature in a couple of more years. And are they being patient? And I know there's a lot of excitement to play them. Uh, Are you able to sort of regulate the play a little bit? No, I'm not regulating the play. And I was asked, you know, should we have not opened Father's Day last year? I said, no, I think we were fine. It was the rolling really that I had to back off on. And I think that now, especially, we just broke a record for the wettest May mm-hmm. in Chicago. So the extremely wet spring has really showed their value. I rarely close the golf course. Mm-hmm. The only time the golf course is closed is during lightning. So now the question is, do I close carts? 
with fairways with bird baths everywhere mm-hmm. and flooded because these greens are functioning at such a high level and mm-hmm. they're staying firm. Mm-hmm. And now the ball marks aren't as big of an issue. Mm-hmm. And I cleaned up the cyanobacteria too. I mean, we haven't talked about that, Frank. So that's all another discussion about pioneer species and how cyanobacteria and moss and algae, other different algae that could possibly want to take advantage of the sand-based systems, not just especially when they're young and new, when they're vulnerable, when there's a vacuum there, but also even later, like when you get these uncontrolled wet spells like we're in, you know, a ball mark, if it's significant enough, could be an area that could be invaded by the cyanobacteria and create issues. So I'm learning about cyanobacteria, and Wendy and Larry Stoll, for example, has got a great publication out with Pace that describes it, and I think cyanobacteria is a bigger player than what we typically uh, discuss it as, and uh, it's all because of these sand-based systems and these pioneer species that want to re-engineer these very improvised sands and get them to evolve into more soil-like and produce, you know, its biomass and its polymers and sugars and and get it more soil-like versus sand-like. Well... It's a chronic challenge. It is, and I'm going to have to study up before we have our next conversation, Dan, and I'm going to thank you now for uh, everything you've done uh, to lead us to this point, to be able to have such a rich and robust conversation about uh, your experience in in sort of watching push-up greens and now uh, for all your career and now bringing a lot of your thoughts that have evolved over years from what I know is your work on your fairways to your putting greens and watching that evolve as well. And you can be sure I'll have a lot of motivation to get you back on here to talk more about cyanobacteria and the evolution of the microbiome but I'm going to need to study, Dan. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure. Dan Danelli is a third-generation golf course superintendent at North Shore Country Club in Glenville, Illinois. Dan is a graduate of Harper College and Michigan State University and the recipient of the GCSA's President Award for Environmental Stewardship, the highest honor awarded from this International Trade Association, recognizing Dan's long-term commitment to environmental stewardship. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business manager John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. 